Hello and welcome to the Reverend Hunter podcast. This is Tony Jones, the Reverend Hunter, joined as always by the Corporal Cape Man to my Inspector Gadget, Brandon. <laughs> you know, uh, you could have went with Penny from Inspector Gadget as well. I mean, she she solved all the crimes if you think about it. It's, yeah, true, <laughs> true. <clears throat> I, but it, does that make her a sidekick or does that make her a star? More of like a heroine of the whole show. That's a good point. That's a good point. I'll take what I can get either way. How you been? I've been good, Brandon. You know, it's that time of year. Had to open up the cabin and uh, found a busted pipe. So tried to fix it myself. Couldn't do it. (laughs) Uh, Had to call a plumber. Plumbers are tough to come by up north. I kept calling. And, you know, you leave voicemails for plumbers up in the North Country, and you might as well not waste your breath because they're not going to call you back. So you just keep calling till you maybe catch somebody live in the shop and you convince them to come over and tell them it's a real quick, easy job. And that's exactly what happened. And he came and fixed it, but uh, spent most of the day doing that. Pulled the fishing boat into uh, the shop to get to get tuned up and side by side. And we have all sorts of trees down. We had one tree fall and smash a couple sections of our dock that are on the shore. So, yeah, you know, the, just the normal uh, spring cabin opening scenario. Yeah, it makes sounding like having a cabin like a lot of fun. Well, it's a lot of fun, but it does not come without uh, work and money. Oh, yeah. Are, yeah, work and money. Totally. Good. Uh, boats are the same way, but cabins really are. And, I, no complaints. I'm not complaining. I'm just saying that's part of the thing. You go up there in the spring, and you better have a chainsaw on the truck because you don't even know if you're going to be able to get in the road. And but luckily, we have. Uh, I got a neighbor, and he had cleared the road for us. And uh, yeah, no, it was great to be up there. It was hard to come home bet, uh, because bet. it just is fun being up in the North Woods and watching everything kind of come to life. Uh, so I hope to get up there in a couple weeks and take another crack at turkey hunting. Um, yeah, that's kind of what's shaking right now. How about for you? What's going on? Not a whole lot. Not a whole lot. Just kind of keeping my nose to the grindstone and working. It's that time yeah, of year. But uh, we did, uh, me and my uh, partner, we we both went out yesterday and kind of looked for spots to eventually go morel mushroom hunting. So we were ah scouting yeah, for the morels. Yeah, yeah. They're going to be popping up by next week and hopefully pretty hard. So. We'll yeah, I'm seeing some um, on Instagram and stuff like people in Iowa are starting to get them. So uh, Ohio and stuff like that. So I figure we must be next. Yeah. You know what? And I just found something something out the other day. You have aspens in your in your yard up north, correct? Tons. Yeah. Tons. There are some black morels that can be fun found near aspens as well. Really? Oh, yeah. yeah. That Brandon, let's happens. do it. It only happens up in northern Minnesota. So okay, you know, I'm gonna for- offline instead of telling you um, telling everybody. <laughs> and when you can come and meet me, I'll I'll be at the cabin and you should come up because right. we got tons of aspen. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I've seen. So I'm just saying out there, you know, there's a there's a chance at your cabin that you have. All right. Yeah. All right. Let's do it. Hey, dude, I don't know how I did this, but I lined up two goats in in a row. Last episode was Randy Newberg, who was just awesome. And I hope everybody listened to that. And if they haven't, go back and listen to it. And this week, we've got Jim Shockey. This guy is a GOAT, greatest of all time. Uh, Television star, hunter, outfitter, guide. Man, fantastic 
human being. We had a great conversation. Um, he's, I mean, toward the end, you'll hear we talk about he's opened a museum that he's funded himself. Uh, that's where his office is now. And it's just incredible, the stuff that's in there. He's written a novel that's coming out this fall. You can find the link to pre-order his novel in the show notes. Um, you can find all about him at jimshockey.com or just like look on YouTube or turn on the outdoor channel. Chances are he's going to be on <laughs> when you turn on the outdoor channel. I mean, he's just, uh, yeah, he's been around, he's done it all. And, and we just had a fantastic conversation covering everything from, I mean, we didn't even, uh, frankly, uh, especially when I have these guys on like Jim and, and Randy Guys who have been on TV for so many years, and probably if you're into hunting, you know him. It's easy to look up and find his story. Just look up his Wikipedia, you know. I try to go a little bit different directions with Jim, and we talked about uh, urbanization. We talked about hunting ethics. Uh, we talked about his wife's cancer and his own um challenges that he's had recently health-wise. We talk about mortality and aging and death. So it's it's a really fun, far-ranging conversation, and I'm really honored that he would come on. Uh, I think people will really love it. So let's get right to it, Brandon. This is my conversation with Jim Shockey, who is uh, a hunting expert, a guide, a TV star, etc. Thanks again for listening. And, uh, you know, you can show your support for the Reverend Hunter podcast by liking, sharing, writing a review, etc. Thanks, everybody. Here is my conversation with Jim Shockey. Thanks again for coming on. I appreciate it. Um, my first question for you is this, Jim. This is this is one thing that has um, stuck out to me in watching your stuff, and I don't know if I'm sure it's occurred to you probably, but um, more than a lot of the other hunting shows out there that I see, um, people cry. I see people crying on your show after they shoot a moose or a caribou, or you know these are I know these are big animals, and you're really off the grid. And I wonder if that's ever occurred to you why that's it's so emotional for people when you're when you're guiding them and and what they're experiencing. Oh yeah, of course it is. Yeah, the the feeling that they get, and I, I mean, you, you try and analyze. I'm not inside their body, but all of us who are hunters and have been there. Um, it, you're you're getting in touch with your ancestral soul. That's truly what it is. Now, now you can couch that slightly and say, well, someone may have saved for 20 years to be able to go on this once-in-a-lifetime trip. Maybe it's somebody that, you know, th those feelings that they have right then are so similar to what they felt when they were with their own father, mother, um, mentor on their first hunt you know maybe it's maybe they're there because i had a fellow one time that um he came up his name was steven i won't say his last name and this was 30 years ago that i guided him and he, he he was a person that wasn't 
you know, very likable in the camp. People disliked him. I mean, he was, you know, at the dinner table, just grabbed people, like literally off their plate. They're going, you know, he's a big guy. And sure. And, and when I took him out, you know, I found out that his wife had died. He was mm -hmm. a professor and he just, his life just went downhill from there. And he, and he, um, he lost control of his life. He became a truck driver and, and hated himself and just blamed himself. And he came to the hunt to get his bear and then he was going to kill himself. Mm. You know, so, so when, when he, the, the time I spent with him, you know, I started learning about him and, and in the end, you know, he told me, you know, that, that it was the most significant event in his life and that, you know, tears in his eyes and that he was going to try and get his life back in order. And I got calls from him for years afterwards. It, it, so, you know, you, you never know to try and say this is what it is, but it truly it, at the essence is, is people are in touch with their ancestral soul in that moment. And, and it's overwhelming and whatever their contemporary uh, reasons, uh, effort they put in, it still boils down to that. They're getting in touch with something that's so ancient and, and uh, innate in all of us. And I think that's what you know brings out the tears. That's that's interesting that you say that. And and I know, um, I mean, I want to talk about your museum and stuff like that, because I know it's been a passion of yours. But I've been doing a lot of writing to try to figure out why I took up hunting as an adult when my personal life kind of fell apart. And and that, you know, how hunting replaced my traditional religious upbringing. And it it's funny that you say that because so much of what I wrote about ended up being about, I want to be in touch with the kind of things my ancestors did. Like, that's what I feel like I'm missing. And one thing that occurred to me is, you know, when my whatever generation, two or three generations ago, when my forebears, you know, left the farm and moved into the city and never had to butcher another animal, never had to kill another animal, they thought that was a, they'd succeeded right like that was what was rewarded in the modern world and now i come along and feel like that modern world's kind of let me down and i'm trying to get back to something so i'm guessing you find people you 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 have almost a ministry or kind of a pastoral type relationship with people that you're taking into the outback 100 percent. the 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 uh the cathedral that we take them into is is the, the wildlands, the forests, the nature, God, however you want to describe it, you know, the great Manitou, you know, the, the Mother Earth, however you want to describe it, the cathedral's there. It's all there for every single one of us, regardless mm -hmm. of our religion or, or, you know, theological point of view, it's there. And when you walk into that, again, back to the ancestral soul, you, you're, you are purified you're cleansed and the, and the urbanization is a false prophet the um, science as as a religion we have it all around us nowadays you know people don't believe in anything so they have to believe in science and and uh the only way you 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 know they try and show penance let's buy carbon you know offsets you know they spend money and they you know look i'm this is my penance this is my tied to their church which is science and, and and as i said it's it's a false prophet there's no there's no 
purity. There's no truth in in the science. The truth you'll find when you get back into the wildlands and embrace what brought us to the table or our, our antecedents, your forefathers, as you said. And, and when you walk out, they're truly open to be part of nature, not a voyeur in nature, because again, that's an urbanized science-based view on what we should be doing out there is let's stand back and take pictures. We're above nature, you know, we're, we're voyeurs. But when you embrace the reality of nature, life begets death, begets life, begets death, you know, and the continuity of the field-to-table lifestyle that goes back, I mean, depending on what you believe, thousands of years or your faith, thousands of years or, or millions, mm-hmm. you know, that's who we are. And, and you, you, you can urbanize. It's, that's, a, that's a sad generational statement on, on where society sits today, at least in, in our Western cultures and, and even around the world. Yeah, but but there's still many people. Make no mistake, there's many people that still live the field-to-table lifestyle and, and a much purer existence than we do in our concrete jungles. So so anybody that's open, tolerant, um, willing to learn, not closed-minded, that walks in the wild wildlands, you know, they feel the spirituality. You you can't not feel it if you're part of it. If you're taking mm-hmm. pictures of it, and that's all you're doing, and you're justifying it as a, the science, and you know that that's uh, that's the only right. You know this in, in an ivory tower. Um, you're never you're not part of it. You're seeing it, but you're not part of it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I you know the reason I reached out to you is is I think it was your post on Easter or around Easter, and I found it to be um, inclusive in that it wasn't. Um, you were kind of writing in a way of saying um, you weren't discriminatory against one religion or for another religion. You were, you were writing kind of like, this is a time for all of us to, you know, spring is coming. And, and I was impressed by the breadth of, of your message, which I don't often see in some outdoor celebrity hunting type people there. They kind of pick their path. And then it's always about that. So you must, because of your clientele, you must have a very diverse clientele. Plus, you're obviously in touch with native peoples who have a different spirituality than those of us, you know, probably who grew up in Western religion. And I wonder how do you kind of manage that with with the people you're guiding, but also even in your own like evolving understanding of spirituality and and truth and and our kind of place in creation. You know, it was Samuel Clements, um, Mark Twain was his pen name, he, and I'm going to paraphrase, but he, he said, travel is the death of bigotry, mm. and I, I believe ignorance, but mm-hmm. I, I won't add that in. He's rolling over in his grave right now, looking down, you butchered what I you know, was <laughs> saying, but because I've traveled so much, I realized that there is no right and no wrong for most things. All of us know what's right and wrong inside. You know, you, you don't murder your friend, you know, the Ten Commandments. I mean, mm-hmm. this, this is, that's universal in, in our world, which, you know, we think we're the universe. We're not. It's a very small planet, third from the sun, and, and one of a, a billion galaxies, apparently. So, yeah. so you, you know, but in traveling, I, I realized that, you know, I, I came in with, with uh, 
subjective views on things that that this is right and this is wrong because that's how I was brought up and I realized over time that well these are smart people over here too and they they think this but it's kind of counter to what I think so I you know I should fight them but you know I realize that they're good people they want the same things that that we do here we want our children to be healthy we want them to have a roof over their heads and clean water clothing and and we you know a luxury we want them to have a education you know but they want the same things around the world they're just like us except their mm -hmm. point of view is different they dress differently they certainly look differently different colors they eat different foods they speak a different language but but ultimately they're the same as us and and i and i started to understand the true meaning of tolerance and it's something that we need more of in this world. I, I realize now it's not a big place anymore. There's nowhere else we can go. We we can't colonize somebody else. And if you know, I mean, there's still people out there trying. But but really, eight billion of us in this world, we need to start getting along. And that you know, tolerance is going to become so vital in that. So when when I'm speaking, I I'm not ever judging. I, I don't judge and I, I don't say my way is the right way and you're just wrong. And there's people out there right now that are listening to this going, well, that's just not true. They're wrong. You know, they're heathens. They're mm -hmm. whatever. Yeah. And, but for me personally, um, what I've seen is, is we all want the same things. There's bad people out there that, you know, the devil, you know, whatever, however you want to say it, they're possessed. They're, you know, they're, they're evil. Uh, incarnate but they're you know there's bad people and yeah. it doesn't matter where you are what color you are what country you, there's bad people and but the vast majority of people are good and that means if they're good and they're you know they're not unintelligent they're you know no like i'm not smarter than them then yeah what's right so 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 i that's where you get the the when i speak i try and be inclusive uh, consensus you know it, it, we need to start getting along yeah a hundred years from now I, I can't imagine this planet if we want to continue to you know not tolerate each other's point of views and and uh and that goes for everything politics i mean look at how divisive it is right now oh my gosh yeah it, absolutely a, you know and, and if you don't cater to this side you know or weigh this side then you're not you're losing that vote which makes you you know well that's not really what you believe you're just trying to get reelected instead of you know just tell the truth yeah so so all of this is it comes down to tolerance tolerate this point of view tolerate this point of view and let's start working together we have to we have to for the good of this you know humanity yeah i appreciate what you're saying so much and i uh, i mean i as as a leader in this industry i think it's incredible that you're saying it i but I know that, you know, the backlash, even I had um, uh, Randy Newberg on and he said similar things, you know, his his cathedral is the wilderness and and hunting is his religion, quote unquote, you know. And then uh, immediately in the comments after he posted it, people were like, well, but Jesus is the only way and the Bible is the truth. And, you know, people have to like take to social media. So that I mean, I wonder for you, how has um 
technology change, the, the social media and everything, the, the access that people have to somebody like you, how has that changed your experience of being a guide and, and being a hunter and being a TV celebrity and stuff like that? It, do, are there parts about that that worry you? about the advance of technology. I mean, I think you and I, you know, 8 billion people is a lot of people. And then suddenly when technology makes it so everybody's on all the time, um, I wonder how that's affected, you know, or ma made you think about the the hunting uh, endeavor. I, You know, it, it hasn't, you know, it, mm -hmm. it, it allows, well, let, let's put it this way. Social media is a double-edged sword. It can be used for horrible, terrible bullying. I mean, you just go down the list. But it also can be used for good. It, it, you know, you said it. We're 8 billion of us. We're always on. Well, we have access today to just about all 8 billion people. Mm -hmm. You and I do right now. I know. You know. We have to market it and we have to somehow create something that reaches, you know, goes viral. But, but the the message that we you know and, and our belief structure we can now disseminate that feeling in a far greater um effectiveness than we could in the past you had to write a book i mean that's what you had to do i've got a yeah. book in our library in our museum here uh, by plinius 1507 he had to write a book mm -hmm. you know it's on vellum i mean he he had to <laughs> Uh, but that was it. And then who could yeah. read it? Well, only the people that were educated at that time to read Latin, um, you know, and, and would be able to afford a book that was handwritten all the way through it. Um, with the social media, you know, if a da Vinci comes into our world, you know, it won't be just in his little enclave and, and you know, social, um, I guess, group that he hangs out in, but but he can reach the world now. You know, if another Jesus comes, if there if there is another coming, imagine, you know, that oh, person, yeah. that deity can reach everybody. So social media is is not a bad thing. It's again how it's used or abused, and um, you know that that does it frighten me not not so much because I do think in the end that. Um, you know, people are inherently good. I believe that. Yeah. In my experience around the world, there's the vast majority of people, like I said, want the same things. Their children to be healthy, to be clothed, to have a roof over their head, to have food, and and you know, then education. I mean, they're that's what people want. The vast majority of us, and then there's bad people that don't want that. So I I, I think that in the end, social media will be, um, like I say, imagine. Imagine hmm. second yeah. coming and the ability to reach everyone, you know, not just the right. locality yeah. you're in. So, so I, I would just be happy if just everyone listened to one of my episodes of my podcast, Jim. I don't even have to be Jesus. Yeah. And, and you know, therein lies a different problem is that <laughs> with 8 billion people, everybody, you know, yeah. online wired in. Half you, of them have podcasts. Yeah. You, you're, <laughs> yeah. Your you're, you're reach it yeah. is you you become part of this monstrous nebulous thing and how does your message get out there uh, and, you know that's i don't yeah. know maybe hopefully hopefully if there is another coming they'll you know there'll be someone really good at marketing <laughs> because that's what it's going to take but i, yeah, but I, get through I, the I honestly believe yeah i honestly believe that that um 
the 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 social media is not a bad thing mm -hmm. you know it, it just you know we just have to become responsible in our use for it, the vast majority yeah. of us let me ask you about the technology of the hunt then um because obviously you've seen it change dramatically over your career and i wonder when you're with all the respect you have for these animals I mean, I'm particularly taken by watching the moose hunts that you guide or your own moose hunts. It's such, I've, I've never hunted a moose. I've seen moose when I've um, been canoeing in the boundary waters. Uh, it seems, and I can see, I bet I can see why it's so emotional for people. It's a very, I mean, let's call it that ancestral experience, but I wonder then when new technologies come into the field, are you weighing the ethics of saying, um of of a piece of technology and the the ethics of the fair chase and things like that like how do you as a professional guide and hunter make those decisions like no i'm not going to fly a drone over to scout that area even though i could because that's you know i'm using human technology to give myself an advantage over this animal um, or something like that. It, that. That stuff must occur to you, and you've seen so much change. So how how do you manage that? Well, ethics are a personal thing, and it's not for you or I to judge anybody else on their ethics. If they want to fly a drone and it's legal, you know, it's not for me to to judge that. Um, I know what I feel is right, and and you know, flying a drone to look for an animal is not my thing. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm not judging someone else shooting at great distance, you know, using the technology we have nowadays, uh, you know, they can shoot a thousand yards. I mean, that's not my thing. It's not why I go out into the wildlands. Um, you know, it's not, it's, I don't need that to live my field to table lifestyle either. Um, but I don't judge it. I mean, mm -hmm. that's, if it's legal, you know, it, now if they make it illegal, then it, then it changes. Yeah. You know, now you've broken a law, but who was it? Um, is it Aldo Leopold said that the ethics are, or you do, or what you do when no one's around to watch, even, yeah. you know, even if there's, you know, it's okay to do something. I mean, that that's a personal thing. So I, yeah. well, what's changed in, in the, in the time? And it's been a long time. I mean, I got my first deer half a century ago, mm -hmm. a little over half a century ago. So, you know, I mean, I, I was out there with my, dad and and my uncles and jumped out of a truck and shot a white-tailed deer mm -hmm. you know running across the field and 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 you know was that ethical you know i, I mean i wouldn't do that now mm -hmm. it, so so you know i'm you know i've gone up anything further back in time you know when that wasn't available to jump out of a vehicle and take a shot i mean it was road hunting um so you know that part i for me i i think I, I was less ethical back then regardless of technology my gun was virtually the same hmm. it's not any fancier or anything better i i have a range finder now but you know i only use that uh, more out of curiosity for helping me judge distance i'm curious and i want to make sure i don't take a shot that's too far right something can look like it's you know 200 yards but it's actually 450 yards hmm. uh, it helps me judge the animals as well so there's technology that i've embraced uh, trail cameras didn't exist back then 
but I love my trail cameras. I probably got 50 of them. Hmm. To me, that's hunting. I get to see, I get to be in, you know, 20 different stands at a, at a all night long and it's legal and I get to see what comes in. So it's a form of, of hunting for me that I love. I, I, I have just as much fun capturing a deer on camera that way, a particular buck that I'm looking for, as I do actually going and getting the deer. I love it. I love to learn. It, it gives me more knowledge. I, I feel like I'm more connected to that animal. So so I love trail cameras. Lighted knocks on bow and arrows. I mean, that didn't exist back way back when. I think they're fabulous. Mm. I wrote a letter to Pope and Young a long time ago when they were adamantly against any technological advancements and said, look, it's just more fun. And, and hunting is supposed to be a little about having fun. You, you can see the knot going through there besides the fact that it helps a locate the arrow and then determine where you hit the animal. It allows you to see the arrow better to be able to determine where you hit the animal. So you're, you become better at what we're supposed to be doing, which is uh, taking animals humanely. Uh, so I, I love lighted knocks. Compound bows didn't exist back then, and I had my longbows. I started as a kid. I, I used to hunt all the time with a longbow, not a recurve, a straight longbow. And and I love my my compound bow. You know, so there's technology. Did it make me any better hunter? I don't think it necessarily did, but it certainly allowed me to be a more ethical hunter and and from my point of view. And again, I'm not judging anybody else's ethics, but for me to use a longbow, uh, a stick bow and, and a cedar arrow and a you know, point, a, a broadhead that I made, I think the idea, the romance is wonderful, but it shouldn't be me doing it because I'm just not good enough. And I know that. So hmm. for me, I mean, that's why I switched to, uh, to muzzleloader. Rifle was too easy. Bow and arrow was too hard. Muzzle was the perfect combo for me, mm. but I was an archery hunter before that. And now I'm back to archery hunting because okay. it's far less important for me on, on what I get nowadays. It's, you know, I'm yeah. just, I get my moose and my caribou every year and that's plenty of meat for us, maybe a deer. Yeah. Um, so, so I, I don't know. I, I don't judge. I think some of the technological advancements are wonderful and I don't judge anybody because they use more than I use. Um, I think if it's illegal, then it's poaching, and and that, you know, that's where you have to draw the line. Then yeah, it's, yeah, it's not unethical; it's illegal. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think you make a good point, and some of the advancements of technology make for less, probably less animal suffering, right? Because there's less, you have better accuracy, more opportunity to make a kill shot, um, which. I, is obviously something people are, I think, very sensitive to in the modern world, which is, you know, one of the things that social media begets is um, anti-hunting sentiment is strong. And I know you've spoken out against that. Um, but I want to ask you about aging, if you're willing to talk about it. Because one thing I've, I appreciate about your, your your social media is, you know, you're just you, you're just honest. Uh, you're burnt uh, over those sweet potato fries last week or something like that. <laughs> yeah, they're not. You're not. Uh, it's not. There's no spin. It's just you and your life. And I know. I mean, so you've been. 
I, I, you know, it's public that you, you've had some health issues in the last year. Your wife's had some health issues in the last year. And I wonder as somebody who's been so physically active for 50 years, and that that's just been your life, how you are thinking spiritually about the aging process. And, um, I mean, I, I've thought about it a ton since I turned 50 and all my friends, we talk about it all the time. Um, yeah. What, what, what does aging mean to you? (laughs) There's nobody gets a free pass on this. I mean, it it is part of, of living. Dying is part of living. I mean, we're starting to die the instant we're born really. And so I've never, I've never feared it. I've watched my parents, you know, what they went through, they're both gone now. My dad, 10 years ago, my mom, three years ago. Um, and and you know, I've seen my grandparents pass on. And, and the people that I've held as heroes, I've seen them pass on. Uh, so who is it? Just just Jerry Springer, I heard on the on the way over here. Now, certainly not one of my heroes, but, you know, he, he produced 4,000 episodes. He he. He was a social statement of of that time period, you yeah. know, shock TV. Uh, he just passed on seventy nine. But th- th- everybody does, and and I, I think, uh, you know, I embrace it. I embrace mm-hmm. it. my my wife Louise is is one of the most spiritual people I've ever met, and and um, you know, she says it, it's a privilege to get to this age. I'm sixty five. Mm. She's sixty six, and and it's a it's been a privilege. I mean, there's pe- many people around the world. There's like eight percent of the people ever lived to that age yeah. that are born in this world today. It's a privilege. So every day is precious that we get, and I never take a single day for for granted. Never have physically. I mean, I'm I think it sucks. I mean, I was I was <laughs> I, uh, la- last year uh, in July. I, my knee started going bad, and I've had it operated on before. It's, I mean, mm-hmm. I've, a lot of miles on my body, and uh, it was giving me such a headache. I mean, a, a knee ache. I couldn't sleep at night, so I got a, I got it operated on, and and ten days later played in our club championship for golf and came third. Right. <laughs> so, I mean, I'm, I'm a good golfer. You know, four yeah. handicap, five handicap, decent wow. golfer. Um, and then a week later, I I started some kind of weird autoimmune you know me if you you know i mean heck i was climbing mountains the day before it's not a big deal yeah and and i could keep up with the the 20 year olds maybe not you know the cam haynes of the world but i could certainly keep up with you know mere mortals and and then suddenly it was taken away from me i could not i mean to get out of a chair would take me 15 minutes i didn't even know if i could get out of a couch Hmm. it was it was i've never been in such pain Hmm. until i you know the doctor's didn't diagnose it, but they fed me prednisone, which thank you. I don't know what people used to do in the olden days because I could I would have tolerated that for about a month and said that's enough. Wow. It was too much pain. And and you know, but it was interesting. I mean, it's just okay, that's my cards and this is this is what it is. So I, I've been fighting that for eight months now. I still can't golf. I can't hmm. work the wrist to, you know, take a swing. I can't lift, you know, that's about it for my shoulder. Um Wow, but, but I mean, who? What did I think I was going to be immortal? And and uh, yeah, there's options. There's I see it all the time. People my age, um, 
you know, getting testosterone shots, getting, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. I, who knows? Maybe I'll do that someday. Uh, you know, human growth hormones, the the various drugs that they're taking, and and they all, they all turn the same heavy, you know, jowls yes, and, know. and starches. And wow. I, mean, I just look at it, okay, I know what you're doing, and that's wonderful. And I guess good for them. Um, but but I kind of want to know this journey, and I, I, I you know. I, I mean, we eat as well as we can. Yeah. I wanna, but I, I want to play this out. I, I know I'm not going to get out of it. No one is. Right. So, so let's see how you handle it, and do you ha- handle it with dignity, and and grace and respect, and understand that if we don't leave, what what is that? We, why do we need other generations coming up underneath us? We have to leave to give space, and we're not doing that good a job at it. There's eight billion of us. Right. right you know right. where we didn't start with that many. Or we did a great job according to, you know, the the rule that we should be procreating as a species. We're doing a hell of a job. Not as good as chickens. They're better than us. There's 25 billion chickens. In the yeah, world. but we take up more space than they do and eat more calories yeah. every day. And yeah, yeah, we, we do. We're the yeah. only large mammal to ever have this eight billion. There's never, there's never been another large mammal that's had eight billion. Uh, no, no species of of our size that takes up this our amount of space and our amount of calorie. Yeah, I did the math of what, how many chickens, if every human being on the planet um, ate one chicken a day, that's about 2000 calories. How many chicken? And you, you know, like you say, there's a lot of chickens because we, they got to feed us, you know? Yeah. Well, the cattle, there's yeah. 7 billion cows out there. There's 5 billion goats, 5 billion sheep. I think there's 4 billion horses. I mean, you know, pretty successful species. Yeah. The only problem is you get just a hair top heavy when you're, <laughs> you know, you, you don't have the uh, biodiversity. Yeah. But again, I mean, look at look at scientists. According to scientists, there's been several extinction events over the years. And, and again, you know, we're not a cosmic event. We're not a cosmic event. We'd like to believe that, but we're, it, we're just a tiny little blip on this. Yeah, you know, I mean... I guess you I guess you read that or saw some of the web telescope stuff about the billions of galaxies they're discovering it it is mind-boggling um I wonder yeah. uh, when it comes to death do you think do you share my opinion that being a hunter and being actively engaged in the death of animals has made you more more accepting of your own mortality of course, of course. Nobody knows more about life and death than than hunters, field to table livers, hunter gatherers, because it's like I said earlier: life begets death, begets life begets death. You you can't have one without the other. Yeah, and, and so you, to try and deny it, how can a how can a hunter deny it? You you can't. It's going to happen, and I think the. You know your your ability to withstand the demands of of growing older is is predicated on your ability to understand that it's part of life too. So so yes, I think we absolutely understand it better. You know, then my wife Louise, I mean, she was diagnosed a year and a half ago now. A horrible. They gave her three months to live, mm. uh, and and with chemo six to nine months and now it's a year and a half and and to to watch her struggle 
with you know I, I don't want to say fight because it's not fighting it, it, but it certainly is a struggle yeah and with such dignity and elegance and and uh, a spirituality it, I can only aspire to that strength and courage that she has and I, and I think as hunters you know we we have a better understanding going into this final phase of our of our existence and and uh, an acceptance it is mm -hmm. it is what it is why why you can lay down and throw a tantrum and you know kick your legs up and uh, and scream but it, it's not gonna stop anything it, it is what it is and, and what a beautiful look today it's a beautiful day today is a beautiful day i don't care if it's raining and blowing outside and nasty cold it's a beautiful day and as long as we keep that in perspective that we're not guaranteed any number of days it's today is beautiful mm -hmm. live day to day and and uh do your best do something good each day uh, accomplish something each day it's you know even if it's walking outside and smelling the fresh air it's a beautiful day and mm -hmm. and that's how i look at this you know growing older and and that's why you'll see on my social media it is what it is if i if i see one thing a day that you know, yeah. even my burnt yam fries the other day, <laughs> you know, that's funny. That's yeah. funny. I mean, what a clown. I didn't, I mean, I didn't know how to cook yam fries. And I, besides the fact that I forgot and I didn't know how to work the dinger donger <laughs> thing on the timer. I mean, it's funny. And, yeah. and that, so that's, that's a, it, it brings a smile, yeah. you know, to my face to do, and Louise, you know, and the, her pointing at me, you know, like, you know, and, and, and Coaching it and then, you know, guess who burnt the yam fries and have Louise's yeah. picture or finger pointing at me. It's just funny. And she even made you go grocery shopping last week. It looked I like, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> never. I, I, it's funny today. She's grocery shopping. She, okay. <laughs> yeah. Apparently, I didn't do that great a job last week. My, my a lot of rubber, snack food, it looked like. Yeah. Yeah, it was like nine bags of chips <laughs> and, and a rubber chicken, you know, a pre cooked chicken. It's like, what? But but I mean I just was so excited. I, I never really do a whole bunch of grocery shopping. So to walk in there and see all this food, it was almost impossible for me not to come up with five carts full of everything that I just love to to yeah. eat. So yeah, it's it's. Uh, but again, that's funny. And it, it is like, funny. You yeah. just have to feeling crappy physically. Who cares? It's still you know that's a it's each day is is beautiful and a wonder, wondrous thing. We should never take each day for granted. Yeah. No, I, I really appreciate that about you. And, and it, I appreciate it about the, the hunting. Yeah. I think it's really brought me in touch. If there's one thing spiritually that hunting has added to my life, it has put me in touch with my own mortality, which has led me to appreciate the days I have. Um, I wonder about one other thing, um, risk, you know, you talk about the propagation of our species, which I think is a, an evolutionary, you know, benefit, like, of, of course, and, and one of the things we try to do so that we, our species propagates is we eliminate risk from our lives. So our lives become safer and safer. And, you know, we have seatbelts and airbags and, and our food is, you know, our, our food is all checked by the government to make sure it doesn't have E. coli in it and stuff like that. But you're taking people out into a pretty risky situation into the, I mean, stuff can go sideways, what you're doing. And I'm sure as a guide and outfitter, you try to mitigate those risks. But nevertheless, I'm sure you have people sign waivers and the waivers say, 
where we're going, you know, there's grizzlies and, and there's fast flowing water and stuff can go sideways. So I wonder if you think there's something also ancestral and human about in the midst of all this luxury and safety that we have in the modern world of purposefully putting yourself into a situation that has some risk. I, th- I think there's huge benefits to your, to your self. I mean, your self-reliance, the, the ability to provide for yourself, to, to look after yourself, uh, that builds confidence in yourself, self-confidence, mm-hmm. uh, your, even your body image. I see so many youngsters nowadays that feel horrible. They don't even know what they are. They're, they're, uh, I think it would do many people a lot of good to, to go out there and challenge themselves, take a risk. And, and yes, the problem with the risk is there's downsides. That's why it's called risk. Mm-hmm. Uh, but to, to try and regulate risk out of all of our lives, I mean, I get it. People want, I mean, they, they want to feel safer. And, and yes, we do do that. But, but in the long run, I think it does a disservice to our species. I think that, um, you know, Darwin's survival of the fittest is, is a real thing. Now, mm-hmm. scientists will probably roll their eyeballs and go, that was Victorian era. You were beyond that now, but you're, I know many, I know obviously met a lot of people in my life. Some of the strongest people I know are the ones that are not afraid of taking that next step, not afraid of challenging themselves. And, you know, taking risk, I don't look at it as taking risk. I'm not a risk taker. My, my risk tolerance is not high. Hmm. My rules for every one of my guides are out there today. And I'll guarantee you, if you phoned them up and said, or got them on the satel phone and said, what are the five rules? Every single one of them could answer right now. And that's safety, 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 and safety. Hmm. So there's my level of risk tolerance. I don't seek risk out. I do seek challenges. I want to challenge myself. I want to try something new. I want to, I want to, when, when, to me, risk is introduced when there's the possibility of failure. Mm. So that, that's to me what, it, what is the most important is, is you have to do things that, or I have to do things that introduce the possibility of failure in, in your life and in whatever challenge you're facing. And, and, Without that, you know, I mean, you, you hear the mountaineers talk about it. You know, they're never so alive as when they're on the mountain facing something that could take their life. Yeah. They're never so alive at that moment. And and I try and avoid that. That's why I don't climb 8,000 meter peaks, although they, like a moth to a flame, they they draw me. I mean, I can probably name most of them. You know, 8,000 meter peaks, there's 14 of them in the world. Because I would probably die, the challenges, attaining the goal is more important than the getting down. It was Ed Beasters, the first North American to climb all, all 14, 8,000 meter peaks without oxygen. He said, getting to the top is optional. Getting back down is mandatory. And for me, <laughs> yeah. the, the, the attaining the goal is more important. So I try not to challenge myself to attain goals that the option if you fail is to die you know that's where the risk comes in and, yeah. and I, failure yes but then choose challenges where you can live with the risk 
literally live with the risk because if you die from the risk, what you know, what was the point? Right. So so yeah, I, I we go out there, but it, it's I think it builds a stronger person, and that's why we do it to, yeah. to yeah. challenge ourselves and face those challenges and meet those challenges. I want to turn to a couple of your other projects, but before I do that, I just would love to hear what is it you love the watching your shows and seeing the Yukon. It looks incredible. I mean, it looks like one of the last really untouched places on the planet. And I just wonder if you can sum up, like, what is it that, that draws you like a magnet to that, to that area of the planet? The Yukon up in Canada is the last remote pure wilderness left in this world mm. siberia and all through siberia it's grand central station compared to the yukon i mean there, there's forty thousand people live in the entire yukon it's the size of texas and montana combined mm. from what i understand yeah and, and that's it's not flat you know it, it's really you flatten that out it's it's even larger um, our outfitting territory up the rogue river outfitting territory that's mine has been for over 20 years it's uh, over 7.5 million acres so over 12,000 square miles and there's not a single road in there there's not any houses just our cabins on lakes uh, it, it is so pure you you can drive or fly in, a, in an airplane because it's only access for well not the only access you you could take a few months and maybe get in there by <laughs> horse but um, you can fly for an hour and a half and and never reach the boundary of our territory. Wow. So to me, to get away from from our civilization, our world, even though we're still pretty civilized out there, we, we fly in with airplanes, for goodness sakes. Uh, we have satellite telephones and inreaches. We have boats and motors and Argos. I mean, it's not like we're, it's not like we're trying to walk out there just in a, a bear hide and, and survive, <laughs> you know, with with an atlatl or a right. spear. <laughs> yeah. So, so you know, I, I, I'm not. Don't get me wrong. I, I love where we are in this at this time in this age, technologically. But uh, the Yukon is is a very special place, and I've said before that it, it will you will find yourself there, or you will lose yourself there. Interesting. Because we've had many people that get out there, and and it's just too overwhelming they need to have ah. the bright lights in the city and and people and and the self-reliance scares the heck out of them so they quit they yeah. call the airplane get me out of here i mean they're they're uh they lost themselves there but there's others that find themselves and once you're hooked in the yukon or on the yukon or by the yukon you're not getting off that hook it's not barbless it, it's you're you're you will go back and back and back. It, yeah. it is truly the most beautiful place that I've ever been. At least, I caveat that. Uh, the last week in August, first two weeks in September, beautiful. You know, spring is is just, I mean, you're literally seeing the end of spring. You're seeing the whole summer. You're seeing fall. Winter's <laughs> just 50 miles up north coming your way. Right. Uh, right. So, but I mean, there's, there's, there's beauty even in winter up there in the darkness. Yeah. Uh, but I, I love it. Uh, the Yukon is what you see. We're not jazzing that up. That's just how beautiful it is. Uh, uh, yeah. Can't even, you can't describe it until you're up there and, and 
just feel the purity of that wild land that is the Yukon. Mm, I would love to get up there sometime. It it looks incredible. Um, tell me about your museum. Well, we're we're actually in the edit suite here in the museum. It's one okay. of the rooms. It's an old school, old. It was built in 1961, uh, decommissioned in the year 2000, so almost 40 years. Our kids, Branlin and Eva, both went to the school. It was grade one oh. to grade six, wow. a public school. It's about 17,000 square feet. The community, the local town council wanted it um, wanted it torn down and 10 houses built. And I, I mean, it's it's it was built in 1961. I mean, it was built and it was built to the state of the art uh, sure. building codes of the time. So it made no sense to me. They wanted the tax base. And so we we bought it out of bankruptcy, actually it took 15 years to get it out of the government. And then wow. um, and and the but they left it in public zoning. So so we had a uh, uh what is that? A movable object meets an irresistible force. The you know, moment when when yeah. I went into them and said, "I want to, I want commercial zoning here," and they said, "No, you're going to tear down ten houses. We'll give you residential zoning, but that's it." So we had a huge ba- a battle. I mean, the, I've, I've dealt with bureaucracies all around the world. Sure, in my travel, these guys are amateurs. They may think <laughs> that they're they they you know they're not they're not yeah. apex predators like some of the bureaucracies around the world. They're getting there. Democracy <laughs> you know, nowadays is predatory, uh-huh. but um, we bought in 2015, opened the doors in 2019 in the fall. And all I did was just say, if someone knocks on the door to find out what's going on in here, let them in. We put uh, sandwich boards on the local roads here uh, six months later. And then uh, just about two and a half years ago, put a billboard out in the highway. I want to keep it donation only. It's, mm. That's I, I grew up in a trailer park, so could not have afforded to come into mm. a museum like this if it was a dollar cover charge. But if it was donation, I could have brought in a a pretty rock, a, a grasshopper. I would have donated something <laughs> to it. It's we we call it the Hand of Man Museum of Natural History, Cultural Arts, and Conservation. Conservation being the educational component, uh, the other side of it being educational as well, but entertaining. Uh, you know, beyond just educating. I, I think a lot of the modern museums, the curators have forgotten that it's it's entertainment first and education comes as a byproduct. If you bore people to death with you know five things in a big giant room with spotlights and you got to stand 40 yards back and read a billboard you know with tiny writing all the way through it, uh, that's not entertainment. you know it's check my pulse am I alive after five minutes and and this museum we get classrooms through it. At least twice a week. Last week mm. we had four classrooms plus plus uh, an extended care home facility. Brought all their their tenants and and uh, and the kids love it. it. It's it's amazing. They, it's state of the art on the curation. So it's iPads with tiny little numbers. It's like an Easter egg hunt. If the kids want to see something or interest, touch the number on the iPad. They get a two to three minute video and a and a, um, a, a explanation of what it is, but with moving video not just a sign to read uh it's cute as can be the kids all bring their parents back on the weekend and the the parents are in shock they walk in as our, our children want to see a museum on the weekend they want to bring us to a museum and then they walk in and see why that's cool it, it, it's a pretty fascinating place i started 
when I was 10 years old, I had the, I envisioned this museum with mm. the contents, everything that's in here. I envisioned when I was, uh, hey, you couldn't tell you it was exactly this arrowhead, but there was going to be arrowheads. Couldn't tell you it was going to be this dinosaur skeleton or this woolly mammoth skeleton, but it was going to be ice age animals and dinosaur skeletons and artifacts and clothing and masks and, and objects from all around the world, folk art. So I just had to figure out how to pay for it. You know, and, and, yeah, and, and that's what I spent the rest of my life doing. Uh, that's what I've spent my life doing. Wow. And I, what I say is, you, if you, it's hard to describe it because it's the number one word that people, when they leave, to describe it is overwhelming, mm -hmm. because there's so much in here to see and so varied and diverse. Because the world's a big place, and, and yeah. the wildlife's amazing. And, and when you go back in time. And start bringing like there's a full woolly mammoth skeleton in here, a full woolly rhino, you know, skull for sure. But there's also a skeleton that was supposed to be a woolly rhino. But I had Dr. Stefano Puccini or Stefano Puccini from Italy, one of the most famous paleontologists and mm. geologists. He's a doctor, doctor. Mm. He came through and said, "No, that's not a woolly rhino skeleton. That this is." He came all the way from Italy. Wow. Uh, he said, that's not, it's some other species that he's never seen. So that's super cool. Wow. Yeah, I didn't know that, but I'm not a doctor, doctor of, of paleontology <laughs> and geology. But but this museum is, um, it's one of the top tourist attractions now in Vancouver Island. Uh, it's it's north of Victoria, an hour south of Nanaimo. So the ferries come below and above. And we had over 26,000 visitors last year. That's awesome. And this year we're we're on a, it looks like a trajectory to be over 30,000. And I suspect it'll top out somewhere around the 40,000 mark because there's no advertising still. There's many local people don't know about it. Mm. It's word of mouth. All the, yeah. Everything is word of mouth. If they love it, they'll, it's JP can sell up. Um, you know, if you build it, they will come. Yeah. Yeah. And that's good for you, man. That's amazing. What a legacy. Well, we're, we're you know, the legacy part is we're donating it all to a foundation. That's awesome. The land, the building, the contents. Mm -hmm. And Louise's and my plan is to actually sell our ranch in Saskatchewan and use those proceeds for an endowment mm -hmm. so that expenses will be paid for 40 years. So our great-great-grandchildren and everybody's great-great-grandchildren can come in and see these things that real, you know, the government-funded museums. This is all private. This is all us doing yeah, it. Yeah. Our yeah. uh, the government-funded museums you know they'll be around there's no doubt but but they don't they don't display these things and we don't have to be politically correct here yeah and I, yeah to be a museum are our, our, you're our, being honest you can be honest it, yeah it's just it's the truth and, yeah. it, and people can't handle that that's not really my problem right our, our right. museum down here royal bc museum in victoria they're decolonizing so anything yeah. to do with with people that came, captain cook's you know, a replica of his ship and where people, you could walk and see how tiny the ship was that he first discovered landed, you know, in the 1700s here on the coast. It's all been removed. The little, mm. you know, Victorian village that where you could see an old pharmacy and a jailhouse and the sheriff's office and, and the clothier, everything, that's all gone. They took it all out because it's us. And, the, and they're, they're sanitizing history. They're rewriting it. And the museum should, in my opinion, should never do that. Yeah. A museum is a museum. It teaches, 
what happened in the past so you can learn to avoid problems in the future. But when you sanitize and say that never happened, you're just doomed to repeat it. Well, and I, it yeah. And, and I'm guessing your, your museum is, I mean, you, you, I'm sure pay homage to Aboriginal peoples and native peoples of North America. Everywhere. Yeah. 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 Not just North America. We, All over, we have yeah. the, we have the first nations come through here often. The other day I had two elders sat in the one room that's dedicated to First Nations Northwest Coast. Hmm. And, you know, they were Hutchka. They were so thankful hmm. that we were presenting this in a respectful way. Their art forms. The the you know, it's it's white people down in Ivory Towers that are determining that that you know they don't want this scene, the First Nations. It's so that's colonial to, to me they're trying not to be and they're doing just the opposite they know yeah. better no, no we don't know better they know better you know it's theirs it's theirs to uh, you know show the world and 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 to take pride in but yeah. again yeah. who am i you know i'm not well, i'm not academic. Yeah, i mean basically basically you've put your money where your mouth is i mean you've just done it yourself so and, and said this is what people want to see yeah and but I mean, there's still people you'll never satisfy. One in a thousand, we keep a track. But they're, they're, what are you going to do? You, you can't do anything. You, well, you if not. you're ready, if you if you really are prepared to take some criticism, uh, we should talk about your novel because I people are people have opinions about fiction, and I don't want Jerry to get mad at me for holding you too long. But I'll just say one of the things uh, that I did during COVID after writing twelve nonfiction books i started writing fiction and jim it kicked my ass is is the it's been the hardest professional thing i've ever done in my life and i know you're you've finished a novel it's coming out later this year did it kick your ass no you know no i wouldn't say that because okay. because i you know I, i've been working on this i wrote the first lines of this novel in 1996 mm. um so, so uh, I've been, I've been writing this novel in my head for more than twenty-five years. Um, boy, is it almost thirty years? Yeah, almost thirty years. So, so it, it's, I, I could have written the first hundred pages watching television. Hmm. It was, I mean, and, and if I have any, if I have a talent, if I was born with a talent, it's it's writing. I've written a thousand articles for magazines. Yeah. And I always told stories in those articles. I didn't do how-to, or very few how-to articles. It was all storytelling. Uh, so, so I've honed the craft. And and I mean, I wrote another novel back in 1993 that um, it was called The Lordly, uh, and and you know it's good, but it, it almost got published back then. I because I was trying to decide which direction I want to go with my career. Hmm. But but now I read it and and I I pulled it back. I actually pulled it back. I it, it got in the top ten out of two thousand to be. They published three of them for Doubleday Canada, which isn't the biggest. You know, it's a yeah yeah smaller publisher, but uh, at least in you know for the Canadian side. And I just held it and said, no, someday I'll, I'll revisit that. But I it's not the novel I really want to write. Hmm. So I I spent you know every time I was sitting on a mountain. Blasting. Every time I was, you know, in, in the Ethiopian bamboo rainforest and and uh, and uh, bye bye, I was watching 
and thinking about my novel. Every time I sat in a customs office waiting for export permits, I was thinking about my novel. Hmm. And it and I it was time. It was uh, 2016. I determined in 2019 November or October Mozambique was my last international trip because I had to sit down and write this novel. I was yeah. ready. So I started writing in November of 2019 and then COVID hit two months later. And what, what are you going to do anyway? Yeah. Uh, I didn't really have anything pulling me this way or that way. And it was, a, it was a calling. I had to, I had to get this out of my head. It was making me nuts. It was taking too much hard drive space. Mm. So I, I sat down and, and wrote it. Um, and then um, it, it's amazing how difficult it is to get anyone to read it. Yeah. Friends to read it, but it doesn't mean anything. Yeah. Uh, but to get a, you know, no publisher is going to take it unless you have an agent. Yeah. You know, my agent, Esther Fedorkovich, gets, uh, she gets a thousand unsolicited manuscripts a month. Yeah. You know, there, there's 1.8 million books published every year. I know, in, too. In North and America. people are reading less. Every oh, year, too. <laughs> and on top of everything. I know. So, so the competition is stiff, and it's that's the ones that get published. The ones yeah. that get written are a factor of probably 20 times higher than that. Yeah. So, so you know, I finally finally got, uh, she got one of her readers to read it, and then, of course, it has to go through the next reader. And they, they um, she called me and said, you know, or didn't call, she had her people call or email yeah. and said, let's do a, a Zoom call and her, her first, it was pretty interesting. And I'm, you know, I'm floating off here, but uh, she was, uh, and, and she's, you know, a beautiful young lady and just, you know, powerful in that industry. And she kind of looked at me, you know, and, and, and she had a piece of paper and she said, I haven't read it yet. She said, but I got to ask you, did you write this? And I, I said, well, yeah, of course I wrote it. It's no ghostwriter. This is you. I said, yeah. And she said, here, and she showed the paper and it, she had, I think there was like 10 of her, her readers had read it. And the, the consensus was sign this guy. He's the next great you know, writer. Wow. And, and she said, this is what they say. And she said, they are the most jaded people. Because they <laughs> yeah, right. did all this, you know, horrible crap. writing yeah. Yeah, crap. And they got, they have to wade through it before it ever gets to her. Yeah. So she read it and, and uh, loved it. And then we had to get it published. You know, that's just an agent. But that, the big publishers won't even look at something unless it's, especially a I fictional know. work. Uh, yes, you know, especially. Yeah. Yeah. If, if you're Tom Brady and you're doing a Look at Me book uh, or Cam Haynes book, look at that. I mean, amazing. Uh, you know, those ones are a lot easier to get published. But a f work of fiction, like you said, is really very tough. difficult. Yeah. And, and yeah. they, they um, she sent it in i think to 10 different publishers of literature so there, there's categories mm -hmm. you know commercial fiction literature which is you know, who, and, and it's kind of literature the book is kind of literature mm -hmm. but uh all 10 of them not one of them read it not one publisher read it yeah they all sent it back and said this can't be in in our category and and the reasoning was because i'm too big of a celebrity right to possibly be able to write literature yeah. You, know, you wouldn't a, write literary fiction because you're a TV guy. That's you, right. You, you, it's impossible. They judged yeah. they I know. Judged by the cover <laughs> and, and said he's too famous. He's too well-known. He can't write literature because literature is the domain of 
the professor or whatever that's gone through three wives and you know he's struggling with depression and he's got and, yeah. he, and he, it's impossible for this person to be able to because he's not that person so he can't so so then we had to put it into commercial fiction which is a far more difficult category far more there's because it's the one with a no ceiling you, that's right you write you write da vinci code or henry potter or whatever his name is harvey potter what harry is it? harry harry potter yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what is jk rawlings or jp rawlings whatever she's going to be jk rawling yeah she's going to be angry with me right now but uh <laughs> you write that you, you can write your know, patterson you can you yes. can write, you can write your own ticket for the rest of your life um hunger games yeah uh, yeah girl with a dragon tattoo you know so if you there's no ceiling on that category, which means everybody wants in that category, which means Simon and Schuster gets a thousand manuscripts a week. Yeah. From from, from all, agents. Yeah, from agents. Yeah. Well, getting a thousand a month. Yes. So, so you know, to get anybody to read it, but uh I have to say, Jack Carr, um, I, have you terminal list? He is it mm -hmm. was he had, I think at one point three of his novels on the top 10 in the New York Times bestsellers, mm -hmm. including number one. He's had how many number one novels? He, um, I sent it to him. Now I know Jack, right? Mm. And, and I, that's his pen name, but I, I'll call him Jack. Um, I was there standing with him when Chris Pratt called him to say he, <laughs> he was optioning Terminal List. I mean, oh it was like wow, a party. Wow. And, and I've always dreamed about being a novelist since I was 10 years old. This is another thing. Yeah. Me too. Museum and to yeah. be a writer. I started my first novel at 10. Mm. I, I would hide the pages behind a loose brick in our house. Um, and 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 I realized, you know, within five or six pages that I didn't have a story to tell at 10 years of age. You can have all the desire in the world. <laughs> yeah. You, for me. You got to live some life. Yeah. Yeah. You had to live. I, and to me, I had to live 65 years essentially before I could, yeah. before I felt qualified to write a fictional thriller to have a story to tell and this this book titled call me hunter it's my story mm. and, and that's exactly what i told them when i when i uh, sent it to me it's my story and it's it's an auto autobiographical abstract thriller is mm. how i'd and i don't know there's no category for that so they stuck it in the thriller category sure because someone gets killed in the first page um what i say is look it's it's about 80 percent truth and the 20 percent that i'm saying is fiction is the part that would put anybody in jail so, so it's, <laughs> but that's awesome <clears throat> excuse me. yeah you yeah can, you can google it any fact in the book any yeah. person any, and they they it's not going to be possible for them to deny it if they are they're lying yeah it's truth it's truth and i mean i've got james pattison mentioned in my <laughs> fictional thriller yeah that that he talked about the main character in one of his novels and he did it's there you know and so that's cool the main, the main character hunter who goes by three names hunter icarus and sizu the man of sores um he's kind of an anti-hero and then there's uh, nyala who's the main protagonist and her sidekick luba and then there's the villain Zhivago, and and it's based in the world of art the underworld of art Hmm. And, and like I said, I didn't have to make up a whole bunch yeah. uh, uh, you know, ethnocentric folk art and the, the tribal art from around the world has been my 
area of expertise and I've been yeah. dealing in art. I had three antique stores in Vancouver. Ralph Lauren bought the bought me out essentially. I furnished all of his Ralph Lauren country stores. Wow. Uh, when he was trying to get around the uh, polo franchise. So so yeah, it's all truth. It's all truth. They all someday they're in, in literature these days, they're calling some are calling that auto fiction. Like autobiography. So auto hyphen fiction. So that's you you may hear that term, you know, that people refer to your novel as that. So hey, congrats, man. That's incredible. And i I'm still working on my novel. So it'll uh I'm I'm cranking away at it. But yeah, smart people have said the only difference between a writer and someone who isn't a writer is the writer writes. Yeah. No, so that's that, right. You just have to write every yep, single yep. day. I agree. And then you're you it, you keep doing that over time. It took me six months of to get my first draft done, and and I wrote every day, ten hours. Yeah, you know, I, I would get up at four and and be writing till noon, and then I'd go play golf or do something to get my brain out of that world because I lived in that world. That was but, that's I've had a Jim. I've had a very very similar experience in in writing fiction. I I fall asleep thinking about it. I wake up thinking about it in that world all the time. So. Well, I, uh, you have to give my apologies to Jerry. He's, he's make, standing. I know, I know he's standing he, right there. He's standing right here. And he, <laughs> hey, buddy. I see he's got a bunch of contracts. Got, and, I, Jerry, I had to, uh, you know, we could keep talking. I, this, is, this is great discipline to stop talking about fiction writing. I really, really appreciate it. It's, Jim, it's been a total honor uh, having you on the podcast. And, you know, best of luck. I hope you heal up before you know the fall hunting season and can be out there climbing mountains and chasing big game again uh, well i appreciate that but i every day is precious healed or yeah. not so i'm not not too worried and it was fun it was a fun podcast because it's thanks like you said right at the beginning it's not the uh the normal question so it's it's good to challenge and and uh and make your brain work so sure. so i appreciate your having thanks me i appreciate your candor all right take care thank you you betcha